If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available right now for you to binge for free on Spotify. A quick note before we begin, this series contains some language and topics that may not be suitable for young children. In 1867, a dentist from New Hampshire named David Burbank bought some real estate in Southern California. It was mostly empty ranch land back then, and he bought about 9,000 acres. When he sold the land to a development company two decades later, he got a quarter of a million dollars on his initial investment of nine grand. Not bad for 1886. Plus, they named the town after him, Burbank. Today, Burbank looks like any other Southern California suburb, but there's one fascinating trace of the ranch land origins of the place. Horses. Drive around and you'll often see people on horseback. You might notice some of the crosswalk buttons are a little higher than normal, so people riding horses can reach them. And because of this weird peculiarity in the zoning, even today, private residents are allowed to keep horses in the backyards of their suburban homes. Uh, yeah, this is all grandfathered in for horses because, you know, it used to be the polo fields for Warner Brothers oh, when they kept all the horses, John Wayne and all of that stuff. All of, all of this was grandfathered in. This is Howard Johnson. So that's why we were able to have horses. That's why we moved here. That's his actual name, Howard Johnson. His friends call him Hojo. Yeah, she'll nip you. Yeah. I love it. I love it. We're behind his house, two minutes off the Ventura Freeway, and Hojo's introducing me to Scout, the thousand-pound Appaloosa he keeps in the backyard. Allez, putain. Allez. Hojo speaks French. Apparently, Scout does too. You can see the affection that Hojo has for his horse, which is a bit surprising because a few years ago, another horse almost killed him. It literally happened less than a mile from where we're sitting right now, a trail that I rode every single day. He was out riding one day and tried to do a trick showing off for some other riders. It was three girls on a horse about a quarter mile down and always carried my rope. And my horse is going full speed and I throw this rope and the way a rope horse is trained is when a rope comes by its eye, it'll stop, mm-hmm. right? So when this rope went by her eye, she, she slid. It was, be- it was a beautiful thing, right? The horse reared back. But on that particular day, the edge of the trail happened to be lined with manure. So she started backing up, and this stuff started building up behind her legs. All I can remember was her going up, 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 and the next thing I saw was that. The horse toppled backward, right onto Hojo. In my face. And I heard it. I heard it. He heard something break. The horse was incredibly heavy. 1,200 pounds. 1,200 pounds. So as I'm lying there, I knew something was wrong in my pelvis. I knew I could just feel it. And I, but she's still on top of me. And a horse is kind of like a turtle when they're on their back. Yeah. And I'm still splayed in the saddle. So I know sensitive spots on a horse, like you can tweak their ear. So I caught her ear and bit her ear. She turned to the left. And she turned real hard to the right to get up, and that's what broke my back. Hojo would never walk again, or so his doctors told him. But these days, he's not just walking and doing yoga and working out with kettlebells. He's back on the horse. Hojo's a survivor. 
Next to where Scout lives is another stable that Hojo converted into a home recording studio. We tend to think of the music business as an industry where you either make it big or you don't make it at all. But the truth is, there are lots of folks who aren't household names, but who enjoy decades of moderate, mostly anonymous success. Songwriters, backup singers, the journeymen of the business. Howard Johnson is one of those journeymen. His studio is full of mementos from people he's worked with. There's a big picture of Jermaine Jackson. He tells me Jermaine is his best friend. I'm not sure quite how seriously to take this until his phone rings during the interview and he asked me to pass it to him. And the caller ID says, Jermaine Jackson. What's up? <laughs> Jermaine, I'm smoking. You know me. I'm, I'm always doing good. I just got off the phone with Ray Parker Jr. about an hour ago. Hojo helped okay, produce Tupac Shakur's breakout single, I Get Around, in 1993. That's him on the chorus. But his closest brush with fame was in the late 1970s, when he joined an R&B group in Miami. My first hit was in 1979 with The Night Flight. Remember Night Flight? Yeah, me neither. But they had a modest hit with If You Want It. The music scene in Miami was colorful in those days and a little seedy. Hojo was working at a tourist nightclub, singing covers from 8 to 3 in the morning for $45 a week when he was recruited to join Night Flight. And then that's when I met Doc. That's Doc as in Doc McGee. Doc was originally from Chicago. He was born Harold Millard McGee and legally changed his name to Doc. He was a working class kid. His dad was a welder. Doc did a stint in the army, stationed in West Berlin, then drifted down to Miami. And he was doing odd jobs, selling cars and construction equipment, when he met a guy who managed bands. Doc was a people person. He had an effortless charisma, so the manager brought him into the business. Doc became Hojo's manager, and his job, basically, was just to keep the band happy. And they used to have a saying that if Doc's got dollars, you've got dollars. And it was just, wow. Doc lavished Hojo and his bandmates with perks. Yeah, we, we always ate at the finest restaurants, finest cars, girls. There are amazing stories about Doc in those early years in Miami, about how he would walk into a restaurant and order 100 bottles of Cristal, about how he had limos on call 24 hours a day, and in New York, he would book five contiguous suites in the Plaza Hotel. Once, he gave Hojo a big stack of cash and told him to go buy himself a BMW. I was in heaven. I was, I was in heaven. In retrospect, Hojo allows that it was a little strange that Doc was such a lavish spender. I mean, it's not like he was managing Fleetwood Mac. This was Night Flight. That song, If You Want It, their biggest hit, it peaked at number 37 on the charts. I never knew where the money came from. I never asked where the money came from. But there was one incident which even at the time struck him as a little strange. This story will get me in trouble, but everybody was out of town. And I'm in Coconut Grove. And some guy comes by, allegedly the cartel guy. 
a big wig comes by. So, you know, Doc and Bob here. No, 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 no. Ojo. Didn't know how to say Ojo. Ojo. Uh, leave something for Doc, you know. Okay, okay. Whatever. They're gone for like a month or something. So they come back. So, oh, such and such came by and he brought this thing. And it's, you know, a bag about this big. Like, you know, put it on the table. What's that? They dropped it off. Opens it up. It's pure Peruvian flake. It was a big bag of cocaine. Minimum five pounds. According to Hojo, Doc said he didn't know anything about the cocaine. He told Hojo he could do whatever he wanted with it. For a while, Hojo entertained the notion of selling it himself, but he hesitated. So what am I gonna do with this? How am I gonna sell this? And I sat there and I called my dad. I said, Dad, I got something here that's making me think twice. Since you don't need my advice, then you've already made the decision. I was like, thanks, Dad. And he hangs the phone up. I sat there and I sweated for a few minutes. And I just went to the toilet, flushed it. Wow. It's probably the best thing I ever did in my life. Hojo knew one thing for certain. His manager, Doc McGee, wasn't just in the music business. From Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify, this is Wind of Change. I'm Patrick Radden Keefe. Episode 6 The Doctor is In. When Doc McGee showed up in Moscow with the Scorpions and a bunch of other rock bands in the summer of 1989, few people realized that until fairly recently, he'd had a sideline as a big-time drug smuggler. In this episode, we're going to investigate the secret past of the Scorpions' manager, Doc McGee, a past that includes one of the biggest drug smuggling schemes in U.S. history, and the CIA, and a mysterious deal in which Doc managed to dodge a decades-long prison sentence and throw a rock concert in Russia instead. Somebody says, you know, oh, back then, if, if you were, you know, everybody in Coral Gables was in the drug business. You know? Right, it's, right. It's a, it's a glib remark, but, you know, it's sort of that Miami Vice feel of the time. This is Fred Goodman. He's a longtime music journalist. And back in 1991, he profiled Doc for GQ. Well, what was the story as you understood it the at that time? The story was that Doc McGee had a, been a drug smuggler, that the guy who managed Bon Jovi had been a drug smuggler. And how old was he at the time? You know, I can't really say. Doc is yeah. kind of ageless when you see him. You know, he's older than his bands and younger than your dad. Doc McGee came into my office. I can't give you the date. I think I want to say 78, 79. This is Alan Jacoby, an entertainment lawyer in Miami. They met when Doc was running around town shopping his new band in search of a record deal. He wasn't even in the business, really. He was just financing a record. And he brought the album with him, you know, on, on cassette. This was the band that would become Howard Johnson's group, Night Flight. And according to Alan, Doc was pretty open about the fact that he was looking to leverage his success in the drug business to break into the music business. He said, I'm a smuggler. Uh, I've done this, that, and the other. He never hit it. He would tell stories of things that would happen, and they were hysterical stories. 
My favorite is with, with the one where Doc says that he parachuted into the Everglades one night. This is Fred Goodman again. And he goes, what was your target? He says, two cars with their headlights on facing each other. <laughs> uh, we were at dinner one time in New York, and he says to me, hey, Alan, you ever see a million dollars? He's making so much money that they burn out three cash counters, right? And they get sick of it, and they just start counting their money by weighing it in suitcases. He walks into one of the bedrooms and pulls open the bottom drawer, and it's filled with $100 bills, neatly stacked. He said, that's a million dollars. <laughs> And we went back to dinner as if nothing happened. I realized at a certain point, he has these bands that are doing really well, but like some of that is money from his old career, right? In retrospect, of course. And I introduced him as an entrepreneur from Chicago that was in heavy equipment, who now <laughs> was turning his resources to music. Heavy equipment? <laughs> you know, like construction equipment? Sure. <laughs> If you want to break in as a music manager, it helps to have an unlimited supply of drug money. And if at first you don't succeed, well, just keep spending. Eventually, Doc got his big break. Doc was interested in the music business. He had been involved with one or two acts that didn't really go anywhere. David Rudich is another industry lawyer in L.A. Doc was exceptionally bright. He had a, an amazing sense of humor. In 1982, Rudich was representing this young band in L.A. And, and Motley Crue was in need of a manager, so I had them booked into the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Rudich had an eye for spectacle, so he deliberately distributed more tickets than there were seats, like several thousand more, so it would be a mob scene with people fighting to get in to see Motley Crue. And an assistant of mine filled the trash cans all over the parking lot with crumpled up newspaper. And somebody set them on fire. So before the band takes the stage and starts thrashing out songs like Shout at the Devil, the venue is literally surrounded by flaming trash cans. Motley Crue came on stage dressed in their wild outfits and with their wild makeup. And at some point, they had squirted themselves with a combination of cigarette lighter fluid and alcohol. They lit themselves on fire and they were running around on stage playing and on fire and the audience was going crazy and... Doc ran over to me and yelled at me, if I don't get this band, you fucked me. But anyway, he got the band, and that's how it started. So that's how Doc McGee signed his first big band, Motley Crue. But here's the thing that's interesting to me. The people we talked to say that Doc got into the drug trade in the 1970s when he moved to Miami. He made a bunch of money in the drug business, then transitioned into music first with smaller acts like Night Flight, and ultimately with big ones like Motley Crue. By the mid-80s, he's reinvented himself. He's a successful music manager. And you might think that at that point, he would be able to leave the drug business behind. But it didn't quite work that way. Do you remember when you first met Doc? January 1982, in the Cayman Islands. This is Stephen Kalish. As a young man, he was a big-time drug smuggler whose specialty was colossal shipments of marijuana. We had just brought in 25,000-plus pounds of pot, and uh, we were down there just partying and celebrating and planning our next operation, and Doc was down there partying as well. Kalish is super laid back. He's done some time in federal prison, but these days he lives in Hawaii. We spoke by phone, and there's a sound you'll hear as we're talking, which I'm pretty sure is him chewing tobacco and spitting in a bottle. The Cayman Islands and Georgetown was very small back then, in the late 70s, <laughs> early 80s. And Doc seemed like a successful guy. 
with one foot in the music business and another in the drug trade. He was managing some hot bands, and he had been really successful in, you know, previous smuggling ventures. And, you know, to the Caymans, he brought Tommy Lee and Heather Locklear and oh wow, Ringo Starr and a bunch of others. Ringo you know? Starr? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Back then, he liked to party a lot. You know, everybody's cleaned up their ways, but... Back in the early 80s, you know, when it was time to party, we liked to party hard. Lots of good champagne and lots of good cocaine and lots of beautiful women. And in the middle of all this, Kalish and Doc got down to business. Doc had some connections down in Colombia, in Barranquilla. And, um, you know, we just, we partied for a few days and then sat down and planned an operation to bring some pot into North Carolina. Kalish arranged to meet Doc's Colombian supplier on the island of Curaçao in the Dutch Antilles. And I flew down on a private jet from the Cayman Islands. He liked Doc's Colombian associate. I mean, all the Colombians I ever dealt with are pretty laid back, with the exception of some of the Medellin cartel guys. But Doc didn't just hook them up with the Colombian connection. He wanted to invest in the operation as well. The marijuana importation business was generated large sums of cash and with relatively low exposure. So when you say he invested, I mean, what does that look like? If I have money, I want to invest in one of your operations. What what does that look like? So Doc would invest 100 grand and he would receive a four to one return on his investment. Four to one? Yeah. So he'd put up 100 grand and make 400. That's a good investment. Oh, yeah. Kalish obtained a shrimp boat, the Lady Morissette, and the Colombians loaded it with 30,000 pounds of marijuana. They sailed right up to North Carolina, but in Moorhead City, the ship got busted. Yeah, so after the shrimp boat was seized, you know, we all met back down in the Cayman Islands. Kalish had to fly back to Curacao to explain to the Colombians what had happened. It's always a precarious situation when you're going back to the Colombians and telling them you lost 30,000 pounds of their pot. But the Colombians were understanding and proposed that they make up the money they'd lost by arranging for another load, a bigger one. She said, okay, well, let's double up. 50,000 pounds. Doc wasn't spooked. I would just think that if the last operation gets busted, you might hesitate before going in on the next one. No. What does it even mean, like, logistically? I'm just thinking about how do you offload 30,000 pounds of pot? Well, it depends on where your offload site is. I mean, typically what we would do is we'd bring the shrimp boat up against the bank or to a dock, and then we would set up conveyor systems, run from the boat into the back of a refrigerated 40-foot tractor trailer. And then we would have, depending on the size of the operation, anywhere from 30 to 150 men unload the bales from the hold of the shrimp boat, put them on the conveyor system, take them into the refrigerated 40-foot container. But this is like an industrial operation. You guys are doing this at night? Always at night. We had it pretty down. I mean, we knew what we were doing. So you guys then decide you are going to go in on this next load, and including Doc. Oh, yeah, especially Doc. Hell, it's his connection. And he'd lost money on the first load, and he was anxious to make it back. And what happens with that second load? Well, we bring it into the exact same port in Moorhead City, North Carolina. They get up to our offload site, offload the 50,000 pounds. They get up to a warehouse in Detroit, Michigan, and sell the pot. And then ship all the money back down to the Cayman Islands.
So we were throwing a big party down the Cayman Islands, and Doc was there, and a bunch of our other investors, and some of our crew. And from that, after our big New Year's Eve party, we um, planned our next stop, which was a 300,000-pound importation into um, Louisiana. So I don't know. Doc put up a few hundred grand. Now we bring that into into South Louisiana, and we unload 270,000 pounds in one night into six tractor trailers. Unreal. So it's... I mean, we netted tens of millions of dollars. Made a whole lot of money. In the summer of 1984, they were planning yet another operation, this time a million pounds, when Kalish's luck changed. Everybody was investing, Doc and everybody I know. Anyway, I got arrested on a fluke in Tampa, Florida. It was an old warrant, and Kalish was shipped to Texas to serve four years on an old charge. But some members of his crew continued to operate while he was inside. And now law enforcement was on to them. The feds had him under surveillance. Uh-huh. Wiretapped, transponders on cars. So Kalish ended up with new charges. And dozens of members of the organization would ultimately be indicted in Florida, North Carolina, and Louisiana, including Doc McGee. They had indicted Doc out of North Carolina. And the first assistant U.S. attorney out of North Carolina was Doug McCullough. Doug McCullough was a say-no-to-drugs prosecutor with a hard-ass reputation. He went on to become a judge. Okay, I'm a Judge Doug McCullough. I'm retired from the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Earlier in my career, I was an assistant U.S. attorney. When we seized this first load in July 1982, there was a lot of investigation that was done, but we really didn't have a single person identified. One thing was clear, though. This was a major operation. That's one of the biggest individual loads I've ever heard of. The first big break came when authorities approached Clinton Anderson, a member of the crew who lived in Detroit and went by the name Shine. And Shine was a bit of a blowhard. He had clashed with some other members of the organization, and one of them, this guy Larry Garcia, went looking for Shine one day to kill him. And so Larry Garcia picks up a shotgun and goes over to Shine's house. Shine was at home. He'd been drinking. Garcia shot him, hit him to the left side of his gut, and uh, blew him up against the back wall. Garcia looked at Shine laying there like that, thought he was dead, left. Well, Shine wasn't dead. He was blown apart pretty badly, hurt, but he wasn't quite dead. So Shine lived and became a federal witness. Once we had Shine as a witness, we knew everything about everybody pretty much. We could put it all together. And he laid out the whole story about Doc McGee and myself. And it was a number of events that all came together that eventually brought the whole organization down. Suddenly, everything Doc McGee had been working for hung in the balance. And then Steve Kalish flipped and started cooperating with the authorities, too. More on that after the break. At around the time of Kalish's arrest in 1984, while Doc was busy touring with Motley Crue and, according to Kalish, investing in drug shipments, Kalish had been living in Panama, where he befriended the Panamanian dictator, General Manuel Noriega. Noriega had turned Panama into a money laundering haven for drug cartels. The first time Kalish met the general, he brought him a little gift, 
a suitcase with $300,000 in it. It was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So I'm sitting at his desk, watching a ship pass through the Panama Canal, literally, while I'm making lines of cocaine on his desk and snorting them. <laughs> oh, God, it was like... On Noriega's desk. I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, I think I've found a home. Kalish used to lend Noriega his plane. He used my jet to fly to D.C. to meet with a John Poindexter and Oliver North and Bush and the head of the DEA. You see, Noriega may have been running Panama and laundering drug money, but he was also a longtime asset for the CIA. When did you figure out that Noriega was working with the CIA? Early on. As long as the CIA had other interests in the region, like keeping tabs on Castro in Cuba or helping the Contras in Nicaragua, it was useful to have this rogue who was running Panama on the payroll. In fact, and I'm not making this up, Noriega flew into Washington on Kalish's Learjet so that he could have a meeting with Bill Casey, who was the director of the CIA. For his uh, cooperation with him in the Cold War and the war on drugs. That's Doug McCullough, the prosecutor, who was understandably a little frustrated by all this. So, so at, at the time that you're investigating this ring that he's involved in, it's just amazing to think about that he's, he's, he's being flown in on the Learjet of a guy who is a known drug dealer to meet with the director of the CIA on U.S. soil. It would, it would be obvious. He landed at Andrews Air Force Base. Okay? The Air Force Base had to know the tail number and everything about the airplane that came in. But eventually, Noriega outlived his utility. And in January 1988, Kalish, who had already been arrested himself, put on a suit and went to Capitol Hill to testify against him. The dealer, Stephen Kalish, testified that he paid Noriega several million dollars for his help in laundering drug money and smuggling marijuana and cocaine from Colombia into the United States. This is Kalish testifying against Noriega. I arranged the transshipment through Panama for a fixed fee. Noriega personally approved of this operation. I felt bad. Noriega treated me well. I mean, I was a pawn. I got caught up in the war on drugs. An interesting way to frame being the country's most prolific drug runner, but fair enough. In December 1989, U.S. forces invaded Panama. Noriega holed up in the Vatican embassy and refused to come out. So U.S. troops surrounded the building. When Noriega still wouldn't leave, a fleet of Humvees with huge mounted speakers arrived. Then they started blasting rock and roll at the embassy. Songs like Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses and Wanted, Dead or Alive by Doc McGee client Bon Jovi. This was a different way to use music as a weapon. Noriega hid in the Vatican embassy in Panama City, but the U.S. Army bombarded the building with heavy metal music at unbearable levels. They were playing these songs to try and torture him into submission. Day and night, the assault continued, until January 3rd, 1990, when an exhausted Noriega staggered out and surrendered to U.S. authorities. So the CIA's man in Panama ended up living out his days in a U.S. prison. Steve Kalish ended up doing eight years. Doug McCullough, the prosecutor, says that pretty much everyone he indicted served time. Except for Doc McGee. You see, Doc was facing a severe sentence, decades in lockup, potentially. But at the last minute, he got an extraordinary deal. 
and he never served a day. They came up with a plan that if Doc agreed to fund and hold some rock concerts that had an anti-drug message, that he should be placed on probation. Doug McCullough was not happy. I mean, the prosecutors were livid over this deal. You know, they had a truck driver who got five years. That's Fred Goodman, the GQ journalist. And they threw the book at everybody else, as far as I can tell. Well, he was the only one that got probation, I think. Everybody else, even the guy who had the the gate keys and opened up the roads for the truck and hauled the marijuana out, got three years. That guy went to prison? Oh, yeah. And Doc McGee didn't serve a day? Mm Mm-hmm. After the North Carolina deal, Doc was charged in a separate indictment in Louisiana. But they gave him a deal there, too. As part of his plea agreement, he agreed to set up a foundation, the Make a Difference Foundation. And in 1989, the foundation put on a rock concert in Moscow. I get a phone call from John saying, did you hear about Doc? It's like, uh, Doc just got indicted. This is Snake Sabo, the guitarist from Skid Row who we met at the park with all those ducks on Long Island. It was John Bon Jovi who told Snake that their manager had been indicted. And it has to do some shit with Manuel Noriega. I'm like, what? I'm like, you've got to be fucked. I'm 22 years old. My career, my life, my future is right in front of me. And it's all great. And then the guy who is guiding our career is somehow involved in with Manuel Noriega. But I uh, called Doc and I said, Doc, can you tell me what's going on here? And he explained to me, he didn't pull any punches. He's like, look, I introduced a person to another person. And they got in trouble together. Were you aware that he had had this other career before? None of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then it turned out that part of his plea deal or his involvement was to put on this concert to make a difference foundation and for drug and alcohol abuse. And there's a lot of irony in that. Um, <laughs> so there's like a plea of some sort for Doc. But like, why Russia? Like, that's the thing I don't get. It was an opportunity to bring Western culture there. The more I thought about this, the more it just didn't add up. Doc McGee gets involved in this major drug conspiracy. And whatever he told Snake Sabo, he didn't have some minor role. He didn't just make an introduction. The Colombian connection was his connection, and he helped finance the whole thing. So he's right in the middle of this international trafficking ring, where the guy who's laundering the money is CIA asset Manuel Noriega. And all these people, including Noriega, end up doing hard time. But this guy, Doc McGee, gets off with a slap on the wrist and an agreement that he's going to set up a foundation and throw a concert in Moscow. And just the fact that it's a foundation. Remember when the CIA sent Nina Simone to Nigeria? How did they do it? They used a foundation. And the rock festival Doc puts on in Russia turns out to be exactly the sort of program the State Department and the CIA have been engineering for decades, pushing American popular music into the USSR. And the Scorpions are there, and they're so inspired by the whole experience that they write a little song called Wind of Change. I just sort of don't buy it. And you know who definitely isn't buying it? My friend Michael, the guy who put me onto this whole Scorpion story in the first place. Every time we talk about Doc McGee, he gets worked up and starts pounding the table. Dude, the whole, (laughs) the premise is, is like, this guy who should be in jail for 150 years for the largest drug bust in the history that was running Noriega's 
shit. The only agency that could get somebody out of jail for 150 you years gonna break the table is the CIA, you. right? So you've got you've got Doc Miki out of jail. If you got to go like do some stupid concert in Moscow, does that make any sense? With the Make a Wish Foundation or whatever the fuck it's called, that's like a it's a shell company. To Michael, there's a fairly clean explanation for all of this. The CIA intervenes to help spring Doc McGee from prison. Then they send him to Russia on a mission with the Scorpions, and voila. Goodbye communism, hello wind of change. I should say, Michael's grasp on the particulars is a little shaky in places. This is the largest drug bust in the history of the United States. And Doc McGee's on the boat. Like, he wasn't on the boat. It's his boat. drug boat. Like, he, it's was, his... he helped facilitate the whole yeah. thing, but he wasn't on the like, boat. But he's but, yeah. the guy. Yeah. Like, there's like three guys, right? He's one of the three guys. Well, there was a, there were like 200 people invited in this thing. Can we just agree Doc McGee did not play a minor role? Like, Doc McGee's a drug dealer. Yes. Right. Okay. He's a shady guy. Right. Anyway, the guy should be in jail. Like, it was something like, in today's money, like $12, 15000000000 billion worth of cocaine. Like, something crazy. It was marijuana. <laughs> no, there was two boats. There was a marijuana, and it was the largest. It was the. I don't think there was a cocaine Dude, boat. See, you're not even prepared. So here it's my facts that are shaky, because Michael's right. There was a cocaine shipment. But Doc McGee was never charged with anything related to that operation. And we won't dwell on the irony that pot is mostly legal now. And Michael has made a fortune on it. But Michael's not the only person to be mystified and a bit suspicious about the deal Doc got. We tried to interview the judge in North Carolina, but he wouldn't talk to us. A number of people suggested to me that Doc was helped by political connections, powerful people who intervened behind the scenes. Who can get somebody out of jail? Who can get a case essentially dismissed. Which agency can do it? There was only one way to sort all this out. It was time to make a visit to the doctor. All right. It's Doc Day. It's Doc Day. So, we're in Naples, Florida. We just drove by a big funeral home. Sun is shining, and uh, we're driving to Doc McGee's house. These days, Doc is back where he started, in Florida. He's staying with his wife, Wendy, in a rental McMansion in a subdivision full of similar homes. The whole area looks very much like the sort of development that sunk the U.S. economy during the mortgage crisis. There's a dusty, vacant lot a few doors down with a sign stuck in the ground that just says, pending. The house next door to Doc has a Trump sign that says, keep America great, and a garage full of Ferraris. Doc is now the manager of the band Kiss. He's never spoken publicly at any length about his criminal past or about the connection between his drug conviction and the Moscow festival. I was a little surprised, to be honest, that he'd agreed to talk to us at all. But we told him we just wanted to speak generally about his experience at the festival. As Henry and I pulled into Doc's driveway, I was nervous talking. The weirdness of this interaction, I, I think, is going to be that I'll ask, uh, I'll ask Doc, you know, did the CIA put on the Moscow Music Peace Festival? And he'll be indignant and incredulous and tell me they didn't. And then I'll be like, okay, just one more question. <laughs> Did the CIA write Wind of Change? Uh, Doc comes to the door, accompanied by a couple of adorable little dogs. Killer dogs. Killer dogs. Watch out. They've got the watchdogs, huh? How you doing, Doc McGee? Good to meet you. Who are these guys? Louie and Jasmine. Hey. 
He does look strangely ageless, with more hair than he had in the 80s, and blindingly white teeth. He's dressed casually and seems very relaxed, and he invites us in. The house seems like they just moved in. There's a bland luxury to the decor that has the feel of a high-end hotel. Doc cracks open a big bottle of electric pink iced tea and starts to reminisce about the Moscow Festival. It was like doing a uh, show on the moon. <laughs> Worse, because you didn't have to clean the moon. You just fucking put the stuff up. <laughs> but Moscow was brutal. Yeah. You couldn't get anything. We couldn't get ice. You couldn't even get ice. Yeah. I had to bring ice in from Sweden. Really? Yeah. You'd think that would be one thing they would have, though maybe no, not in August. Nothing. Doc says that it was when he met the Russian rock impresario and Kremlin princeling Stas Naman. Remember Stas, the guy with the ponytail we talked to at the theater in Moscow? That he got the idea for the concert. I just was driven to do Lenin Stadium. Why? Know, and light. Because, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. You know what I mean? You have to make a statement. Like I always say, if you're going to run with the big dogs, you can't piss like a puppy. For a year before the show, Doc says, he flew to Moscow every other week for meetings at the Kremlin. He had to do this to get permissions and square away logistics, he explains. But I'm thinking, twice a month for a year? Really? But Doc wasn't all that impressed by the Soviets, he says. In fact, his biggest impression, spending all that time in Russia, was that the USSR was a paper tiger. We're raised getting underneath our desks because the Russians are going to, you know, bomb us and this huge military force of the Soviet Union and all that kind of stuff that we're raised yeah. um, really turns out to be a popcorn fart and they couldn't shoot a bottle rocket at you. They're just, they don't have any assets. They don't, and the Cold War, you find out, was really propaganda. I have definitely been finding that out. It became more important to me to do it in Lenin Stadium because I started to understand how important the impact would be to do 300,000 people in two days. A brief fact check here. The capacity of the stadium is 75,000. So over two days, it wouldn't have been 300,000, closer to 150. But all good managers round up. And get Russian television to put it on their TV for the first time in the history of the world that there was a rock band on television. This whole thing was such a gargantuan operation. I asked Doc what made him think he could pull it off. Because I'm just fucking crazy. And, I, and I've always been able to get my way. Okay, so, uh -huh. so I wasn't going to not get my way. To hear Doc tell it, he just told Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, and Skid Row that they would all be going to Moscow. <laughs> so there was no trepidation at all about the I, idea. This is, no. this is like the evil empire. No, I mean, I don't, they, I don't think they really understood it. So you weren't saying, like, come on, guys, let's go, let's go end the Cold War? No, fuck no. They wouldn't know what the Cold War was. <laughs> <laughs> Do we need a coat? You know, what I mean? <laughs> you know they, they have no idea. Only one band understood the stakes, Doc said. The Scorpions. They had played Leningrad the year before and been shut out of Moscow. So they really wanted to play Moscow now. And, this, and what I love about the Scorpions is they play everywhere, man. They want to play. We played Bucharest like six weeks after Kilcheska was hung in the town square. We stayed at his house. Wow. His driver was our driver. Just shit like that. We played Sarajevo during the war. Gotta say, none of this is making them sound any less like secret agents. But I was working up the nerve to ask Doc who it was exactly that gave him his get-out-of-jail-free card. 
I just want to understand the origins of this whole thing and the Make a Difference Foundation. So this grew out of your plea deal? Yes. The Make a Difference Foundation did. Uh-huh. Okay. But it had no connection or anything with, this, with the Moscow Music Peace oh, Festival. Really? I brought it over. Up to this point in the interview, Doc has been very relaxed, full of aphorisms and one-liners. It was like little tape loops, stories he's told before. But now suddenly, his story got harder to follow. I, I put it involved when we did the tie-in between the East and the West because the Make a Difference program was to help kids on, on alcohol and drug abuse uh-huh. that I formed after my plea deal with, with the government. Doc explained that he did some earlier concerts to satisfy his plea deal. For example, he apparently got the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to perform, or as he puts it, well, I did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for kids and shit, but that was it. I just had to do some community service and... And set up the foundation. Uh, I didn't have to set up a foundation. Huh. They, they didn't say you set up a foundation. Yeah. Because, I mean, I part of what I've, I've been trying to figure out is, like, did the... So the U.S. government didn't have anything to do with the Moscow Festival? No. None. Nothing. Because no. you can see how from the outside there's a situation in which you are tied up in this thing, mm-hmm. a bunch of people go to jail. Yeah, yeah. You don't. They basically right. say to you, like, you're good, you know, right. you've got this plea, and then you go to Russia, and it's actually, like, it was kind of in the interest of the U.S. government, if you think about it, I mean... Well, you know, like I said, it's conspiracy theory. You can come up with all kinds of shit, okay? Uh-huh. And you can, you know, you can say, and I understand how people would think that the tie-in was there, but you have to remember, the indictment was from 1980. Okay? Uh-huh. So that's not true. In fact, Doc is off here by about seven years. He wasn't actually indicted until April 1987. And when you think about it, he couldn't have been indicted in 1980 because he hadn't committed the crimes yet. He didn't meet Steve Kalish until 1982. Maybe his memory is foggy. But it seems interesting that he's suggesting, erroneously, that there was almost a decade between his drug indictment and the Moscow Festival in the summer of 1989. The plea deal is 88. Yeah, well, yeah, the plea deal was... uh, April 88. So So the plea deal happens just a little over a year before the Moscow concert. I mean, can you tell us just a little bit about... Because it does seem like you were in kind of a transitional part of your life at that point. Or maybe you transitioned and then you're getting kind of pulled back... Like, help well, me just understand the... the. Well, you, have to, you people say, how did you get into this? Okay? And I just tell them the truth. Yeah. Nobody would hire me. So I had to figure out how, what I was going to do. I was out of the Army. Doc got mixed up with the Kalish Network almost by accident, he says. I was with a guy named Jerry Carroll, uh-huh. who happened to also be a smuggler, but he was in the Caymans. And so I introduced everybody to each other and said... Don't forget me at Christmas, which they didn't. And, <laughs> and so when they all went down. Doc disputes some of what Kalish says, insisting that he was only an investor in one of the big drug shipments, not all three. In fact, in Doc's view, it was Steve Kalish who was the source of his troubles. Kalish then turned me or said, I guess he was going against me. And this was, they were trying to pin me for everything saying that I was a kingpin behind Kalish and all of them, okay, and Noriega and all that shit, okay? 
So McCullough, Doug, he tried to put me away if he could. Uh huh. He was he was not. We got, talked to him. I mean, this is part of the reason I'm so interested in the deal because he was a hard ass. Terrible. And the judge was a hard ass who actually up to that point yeah. was not like a, he was pretty hard on drugs kind of dude. Terrible. So you got a sweet deal. I mean, I realize I'm not well, saying you were the kingpin or I buy any of that, but I'm saying no. in whatever role, the indictment said you made the introduction in, in Colombia. Yes. To the, you know, the source of supply, basically. Yeah. Well, you did some homework here, so. Doc's posture has changed. He takes a big swig from his iced tea. So, yeah, I mean, they, they said all kinds of shit, okay? Yeah. Whether, and it doesn't matter whether they say it's true or it's not true because nobody will believe me if I say whatever. I'm not listening. Okay? So, I don't, so I don't care, okay? It doesn't matter. But the real tr truth of the matter was is that Kalish and that group were the conduit to Noriega. But you must have thought you were going to jail. I thought I was probably going to get something when I, because of who I am, and they just want, they just don't like, they don't like the king. Nobody <laughs> likes the fucking king, okay? I'm sorry. <laughs> they want to chop the fucking head off the king. Doc swears he wasn't the kingpin, but that doesn't mean he wasn't the king. So you thought they were coming for you? I knew they were. And at a time in your career when you were just, you'd like the just hottest, gotten on the back of a rocket. I was the hottest fucking manager in the world. Were you scared? I think you'd be stupid if you weren't scared, okay? But, you know, shit happens. You know what I mean? You're, I really, you know, I live a blessed life. I think I have a horseshoe stuck in my ass at the time. And, and so the U.S. I government, made, the U.S. government had no hand in the Moscow Festival? None whatsoever. None. Really? Nothing. Had nothing to do with it. Had zero to do with it. Because you can see how from a distance. Everybody says that. And I said, how the fuck do I, who says? It's like the best thing that ever happened to the US government. I would think so. But it just happened by accident. 150,000 young Soviet yeah. kids listening to Bon Jovi. Right. I'm, I'm hip. It's a great, it's just, it was just part of the shit. <laughs> I can see why people like Doc. He is, as advertised, a funny, charismatic guy. I found myself thinking about this thing John Amendez, the CIA's master of disguise, had said to me, about how the perfect CIA officer is someone who's just effortlessly likable and able to forge quick connections with people. So who knows? Maybe Doc is a spy. Or maybe he's just a good rock manager. And after talking to him, there's part of me that was ready to believe that the Moscow Music Peace Festival was not a CIA operation. I spoke with two of Doc's lawyers who represented him in the plea deal. They were both very plugged-in guys in North Carolina, and they told me that what was really going on here was something different. The local authorities were looking for something from Doc McGee. They wanted John Bon Jovi to come and do a concert, or hey, maybe the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. When they went to Louisiana, the judge asked, could you help us with a concert at the Cajun Dome? Could the sheriff get all the proceeds from the parking? Could you maybe get Michael Bolton to come down here and perform for my wife's junior league? And Doc McGee, according to one of the lawyers who was there, he just grinned and said, I'd be happy to. I'd been looking at Doc's story as this exotic global conspiracy. But what if there's another way to read the same facts, as something more banal, 
and familiar. A wealthy white guy with some good connections got pinched in a drug bust. So he hired some high-end good old boy lawyers, and they met with the good old boy judge and sheriff to see if they could work something out. And behind closed doors, like it's an Elks Club meeting, they hammered out a deal to let the rich guy off while a bunch of other folks went to jail. That's a story as old as the USA. There was one other piece of evidence that was throwing me off, too. I made a Freedom of Information request, asking the CIA for any documents they might have on the Moscow Music Peace Festival. And they wrote back and told me, definitively, that they had none. There's a couple of things that are weird about that definitive no from the agency. One is just, really? I mean, okay, I can believe the CIA didn't instigate the festival, but does it make sense that you'd have this huge, unprecedented spectacle of Western rock acts playing in Moscow, and Doc McGee going back and forth every other week for meetings at the Kremlin, and nobody would send a single memo home, just like alerting people, FYI, this is happening? Then there's the other thing, which is, I ask for files on the Moscow festival, and the agency gives me this definitive, unequivocal, no such files exist. But remember when I asked about files relating to any relationship between the agency and the Scorpions? That one they wouldn't give me a definitive answer on. They could have just said, no such files. But instead they said, we can neither confirm nor deny. Can I throw another, uh, another conspiracy theory at you? Sure. Have you ever heard anything about the CIA having anything to do with wind of change? Mm-mm. No. Do you mean like helping him write it? That's one version of the story. Or maybe or maybe that's, getting the That's interesting. It would never happen. Why Although, not? Well, because Klaus would never allow that. Klaus. Why not? Well they're you know, they're rebels, those guys. I mean those guys are not part of the establishment. They, oh really? No, they're Germans, yeah. They're fucking they're tough. <laughs> they're they're tough, so I didn't really understand what Doc was trying to say here, what being tough had to do with being German, or what either had to do with someone's willingness to dabble in espionage. But then his tone changed. Could it happen? I guess it could have happened. I don't see that from my side of watching all the government and CIA wouldn't have any understanding of what rock music did to begin with and whether it influenced it because there wasn't enough precedent to say they could use you as propaganda. It would be the same kind of theory that the Cold War was. You know, uh, oh, how do you mean? Th they could have because when we, were when we did the Moscow Music Peace Festival, okay, when I did it, I could see them going, wow, here's an opportunity if you want a conspiracy theory. Give it to me. If you're a fucking mine hunter, you're the mine hunter, you know. Uh, Hit me. That they could say, let's really leverage this, okay, to, to help, you know, get the wall to come down and everything else because, you know, it was so close. Um, and we didn't know the wall was going to come down. You didn't? No, fuck yeah. no. So you could see some universe where the CIA sees this happening and just sees there's like this, you know. I could, you know, I could see 
Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. As our interview came to an end, Doc walked us to the door. All right, we're out of here. All righty. I'm going to let you know if I get to the bottom of the CIA thing. I'm going to figure it out. That's, that's interesting. So you've never, you've really never heard anything like that? No. Because this, no. this rumor came from inside the CIA. Really? Yeah. Looking back, in retrospect, I would say, why wouldn't they have said, you know, how, how do we use this to our advantage? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Here's what I kept thinking about as we drove off. How when I asked whether there was a connection between the CIA and Wind of Change, Doc immediately said, like they helped him write it? For months, I'd been talking to former spies to see if someone had heard the same story that the Greybeard told Oliver, and none of them had. But at the same time, none of them laughed it off as implausible, this idea that the CIA might have written a heavy metal ballad about freedom, or at least promoted it. Pretty much everyone I talked to said, never heard that, but yeah, could have happened. And here we were interviewing Doc McGee, the guy who was the manager of the Scorpions at the time. And on the one hand, he's talking about conspiracy theories and calling me a mine hunter. But on the other hand, he's saying, yeah, could have happened. When I started this thing, I thought I would begin on the outside and work my way in, getting closer and closer to the band until it was time to confront Klaus Meine himself. It feels like that moment has almost come. Wind of Change is an original series from Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. The show is written and hosted by me, Patrick Radden Keefe. The senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Associate producers Natalie Brennan and Ben Phelan. Joel Lovell is our editor. Consulting producer Michael Stender Auerbach. Sound design and mixing by Henry Malofsky. Original music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Our music supervisor is Jonathan Feingold. This episode featured Drift by Ratatat, courtesy of XL Recordings Limited and Monotone Inc and St. European King Days by Opium Flirt, courtesy of Irvin Tromafoy. The executive producers of Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. At Crooked Media, executive producers Tommy Vitor, Sarah Wick, and Sarah Geismer. And from Spotify, executive producers Liz Gately and Jake Kleinberg. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Allison Falsetta, Josh Yaffa, Xenia Barakovskaya, Maddie Sprunkheiser, Eric Menel, Courtney Harrell, Chifa Yadur, Jesse McLean, Paul Spella, Bianca Grimshaw, Saisar Skandaraja, Jonah Weiner, and Justina Gazowska. Source material in this episode included NBC News, BBC World News, and the Vanderbilt Television News Archive. If you're listening to this episode and don't want to wait till next week to hear where the story goes, head over to Spotify. It's free to download and free to listen to podcasts. All episodes of Wind of Change are available right now for you to binge for free on Spotify. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.